I think one of the most difficult things to do in the human life is to comfort people in their afflictions. It's extremely difficult to know exactly what do we say, what do we do when someone's whole world is falling apart. Uh, I've found it many times where even Christians will debate among themselves. Someone goes through a hardship and some Christian will want to respond this way. Another Christian will say, no, they're not ready for that. They don't do that. It's very hard. What do you do? How do you help people? Yeah, I, I, I know all of us wish we had just some kind of magic button. That when we or someone we love is going through a time of crisis, we could just press it and make all their pain go away, make all their troubles go away. But that's not, that option isn't available to us. How do we help people who are in a time of affliction and great pain? Every one of us have been there, obviously, to different degrees than one another, to different degrees to everyone around the world, but the human life is a life of suffering. There's that famous line from the movie The Princess Bride. He says, life is suffering. Anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. We are all familiar and acquainted with suffering. And it's very difficult to know how do we help one another? How do we support one another during these times? What I found is typically responses, people typically tend to need to hear at least two things when they're going through a time of affliction, a time of pain, persecution. And the first thing they oftentimes need to hear is some form of encouragement. They need to hear some form of encouragement. Things like, it'll be okay. Things like, it will be over soon. Things like, you're going to be better off for it. You'll be stronger at the end of this than you were before you began. People need hope. They need something to cling to, something that helps get them through it and lifts their spirits. They need encouragement. But I found a lot of times people also need vindication. They need vindication. They need things like, it's not your fault. This isn't your fault. They need to hear things like, what you did was right. What you're doing is right. Encouragement and vindication, I have found, are oftentimes so helpful when people are suffering. And I believe that this is the pattern that Jesus sets for us as we now look at the next letter to our next church. Today's church is the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna. Let us hear what the Lord has to say to the church at Smyrna. If you will begin with me at verse 8. And read through with me verse 11, for these are the very words of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they are not. They are but a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now this bars the reading of God's word. Well, as we see, the church in Smyrna seems to be under slightly different circumstances than the church in Ephesus was last week. 
This is a persecuted church. This is a church of great trouble and great affliction. We see this all throughout the text. Jesus begins in verse 9, telling them that he is omniscient. He knows their tribulation. He knows their poverty. This is a church undergoing some kind of intense tribulation. And even their poverty is more than likely, we don't know this for sure, but it's more than likely not just circumstantial. It's not just uh, a bunch of poor people started a church and now they're poor. But these are most likely, their stuff has been confiscated as persecution. Uh, we see this, well, we won't turn there, but you can read in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, when, when the author of Hebrews is describing various forms of persecution, one of the things he lists is that your things are confiscated and stolen because of your faith. This was not uncommon, so most likely this is a church that has gone through persecution, tribulation, and they've even probably had most of their stuff taken from them. They are being slandered, blasphemed, verse 9. And then there's even more coming. Jesus tells them for 10 days there's going to be this great tribulation. Some of you are going to be thrown into prison, and as the text says, be faithful unto death, some of them are even going to die. This is a church of poverty, persecution, and pain. Although this was, uh, quite honestly, characteristic of almost all of the churches of this century. The early church from the first 300 years after Christ knew almost nothing but hatred and persecution from its surrounding area. As a matter of fact, Leonard Ravenhill, great preacher, once said, the early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. Most of us just simply can't even really relate to what the people in Smyrna were asked to go through because of their faith. But Jesus knows how to comfort. And I believe that a close examination of this text will bear witness to the fact that this short little letter to them would have been an incredible comfort. Jesus knew exactly what to say to this persecuted church. And I believe he's going to follow that pattern. And so we're going to look at that. Jesus encourages this church and Jesus vindicates this church. He encourages them and he vindicates them. So let's look at how does Jesus encourage the church of Smyrna? Well, the first way he encourages them is with the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Jesus encourages the church with his sovereignty. What do I mean by that? Why do I say that? Look at verse 8. Jesus says, I know your tribulation, or forgive me, verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last. The first thing Jesus sets their perspective on is who am I? Who is it that's writing to you? The first and the last. This was a Hebraic expression for the eternal sovereign God. Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is the one who has no beginning and no end. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. The alpha and the omega. He reminds them, I am the eternal God. 
I have no beginning, I have no end, but there's more to it than just eternality. This concept of being eternal, being the first and the last, would have also reminded these people of his governance over all things. All created things are ultimately under Christ because he is the uncreated one. He is the eternal one. So Jesus, right from the get-go, reminds them, I am God, I am eternal, and I am sovereign over everything you're going through. And that, by the way, ought to be an incredible encouragement for every Christian, no matter where you're at, no matter how serious your suffering is, sovereignty, as the great Charles Spurgeon once said, is the pillow we rest our heads on at night. People in the church wrestle with this. They think that they don't like the concept of sovereignty because they think it puts God on this hook and makes him the author of evil, right? God loves me. He doesn't want me to go through this horrible stuff. So if he was in control, he would stop this. But a loving God would never expect me to suffer. He would never put me into suffering. But I would recommend to you that if you think about that, that's terrifying, that my sufferings, that you can actually go through something and the, the first and the last, the eternal God is up in heaven saying, I really didn't want this to happen. Oh no. Yeah, this is bad. I better find a way to fix this, hopefully soon. Do you believe in a God that's outside of your suffering? There's some part of your life that he, I'm sorry guys, I have no control over that. No, Jesus reminds them, I'm over this. I, I, I haven't forgotten. I am the first and the last. And by the way, this is why, look at verse 10. This is, this is exactly why Jesus can tell them, number one, do not fear. Why should they fear? Because the future is in his hands. A God who's not in control of my sufferings has no business telling me not to fear. You don't know what's going to happen, God. You don't know how bad this is going to get. How dare you tell me not to? No, it's, it's because I am the first and the last. I can tell you, don't fear. And additionally, it's why God is able to give them insight into how to interpret all this suffering. He says in verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you, some of you, into prison, that you may be tested. Jesus tells them, your suffering is testing. Th that tells us that there's intention to it, right? A teacher doesn't accidentally give you a test. You don't show up to, cl to a classroom and just stumble upon a test. And the teacher goes, oh, well, I guess, we're, I, I guess we're taking a test now, okay. No, test is intentionality. Jesus is testing them. He's giving them a test. So what do they know about their suffering right away? Jesus is in control and he wants us to be here. And that ought to be great comfort. Now you might push back and say, well, uh, you know, your theory falls apart here because who is it that's testing them? It isn't God, it's Satan. Right? What does the text say? It isn't God who's throwing them in the prison, it's Satan throwing them in the prison. And this is true, but that uh, reading betrays a consistent reading of the sovereignty of God found throughout all of Scripture. That view gives Satan far too much credit. 
Because that view, that view refuses to see Satan for what he is, which is he's a dog on a leash. Satan is not running around doing whatever he wants, thwarting the will of God. Satan is God's puppet. Here's the best example of this, the book of Job. Satan wants to do a lot of things to Job, but guess where he, what he needs first? God's permission. Satan doesn't just go off and attack Job. He meets with God and says, let me do this. Please, let me do this. And guess what God does? He gives Satan his boundaries. He says, you can do this and you can do this, but you can't do this. And Satan obeys. Because he's a dog on a leash. And if you want further vindication of this, by the way, so Satan goes through and he does all these things to Job. He kills his, most of his family, destroys his home, kills his livestock, kills his, gives him sick. Satan wrecks Job's life. It's Satan who does it. But how does Job respond in chapter 121? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You read all through Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, and Job knows ultimately what's happening to me comes from the hand of God. Of course, Satan is involved in it. God uses means. He uses people. He uses Satan. He uses means. But Job knows if God didn't want this to happen, it would not be happening. The Lord has taken from me, not Satan. This is God's divine testing. Why? Because he's the first and the last, not Satan. He's the first and the last, not the Roman government. He's the first and the last, not the Jewish people. They are not in control of the destinies at Smyrna. So he comforts them by saying, I'm in control. This is a test. It's just a test. I'm still in control. I am the first and the last. In other words, what I want to summarize this point, God's sovereignty tells us this, that there's always a purpose in our suffering. You never experience purposeless suffering. There is a purpose in our suffering. But he does more than just remind them of his sovereignty. He reminds them that they will overcome. He gives them the hope that there is a light at the end of this tunnel. You will overcome He does this in a couple of ways. The first way, look at what he says again in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, but that's not just who Jesus is. Who else is he? Who died and came to life. Let me go on a very quick rabbit trail and just briefly remind you that this verse by itself is a wonderful testimony to the deity of Christ. You run into someone who doesn't believe Jesus is God, you can go to a lot of different places to prove it, but this is honestly one of them. Now, how do we know that? Because what did we just talk about? What does the first part of the verse say? Who is Jesus? The eternal one. The first and the last. You read through Isaiah 40 through 46, that's where this phrase comes from. Yahweh, Jehovah, speaking from heaven, says all throughout Isaiah, I am the first and the last. I am the only God. There is none like me. I am the beginning and the end. Is there any other God? I know not of any. Every theistic person who tries to take the Bible even remotely seriously will admit that to be the first and the last is an exclusive right of God alone. It is only God who is truly eternal. 
Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus has a beginning. Jesus is a created being in Jehovah's Witness theology. Mormons believe Jesus had a beginning. Jesus is a formed, birthed being in Mormon theology. Jesus has a beginning. He cannot be the first nor the last. So when they read stuff like the first and the last, they say, no, this is not Jesus. This is Yahweh. This is God. But what's the problem? Ask them this question. When did Yahweh, Jehovah, the first and the last, when did he ever die? You see, the first and the last, the eternal God dies in this text. Only Jesus fits that bill. Only the Trinitarian evangelical understanding of Jesus fits that bill. That he is both the eternal, uncreated God, co-equal with the Father, who entered into human history so that we can truly say the first and the last, the eternal one, he died. And that, by the way, getting back on track, is a huge comfort. Isn't it comforting in your suffering, specifically in your religious persecution, to remember the God that's in control of this, the God that I, I pray to, is not immune to this? In other words, all the other religions of men, the God that they pray to when they're suffering is a God who knows no suffering. That God has never walked where they've walked. That God doesn't understand what it's like to be a human, to be persecuted, to be hated, to be impoverished. They're praying to a God who has no familiarity with anything they're going through. But we have a particular luxury as Christians. When you're going through something terrible, guess what? Jesus knows he's been there. When's the last time you were publicly mocked, shamed, tortured, and crucified on a Roman cross? Your God has been there. The one you pray to has been there. So the church in Smyrna, imagine their comfort. They're sitting here thinking, we're destitute, we're alone, we're persecuted, we're going down, and they remember, we are walking the steps of Jesus. This is nothing new to God. This is nothing he doesn't know or understand. He's the God who died who was persecuted and killed, who suffered. What a name. We sing that song, Man of Sorrows, what a name. Truly is a name. The eternal God is described in Scripture as a man of many sorrows. Jesus' own sufferings need to be a comfort to his persecuted people. He has gone where he calls us to go. As a matter of fact, the New Testament tells us that all of our religious persecutions are ultimately us joining him in his suffering. We are called to share in the sufferings of Christ, to be crucified with him. That's why the great John Owen once said, it's really not even our persecutions that we're experiencing, it's his. He said, all of our persecutions are his in the first place. They are only ours by participation. This isn't Smyrna's persecution. These are Jesus' persecutions. They are joining in with their union with Christ. Christ's suffering is a great comfort. But, but the, really the point, though, is not so much to remind them that Jesus suffered. It's not just to remind them that he died. The important point is what does verse 8 say? That he died and what? came to life. In other words, Jesus overcame and conquered his sufferings, never to suffer again. So the church in Smyrna is reminded right away, 
this suffering is temporary. We serve a God who resurrected, and as 1 Corinthians 15 says, his resurrection was the first fruits and then the rest of the crop. We are going to join him in his resurrection. We join in him in his persecution, but we also join him in his resurrection. So what does that tell them? What we're going through is terrible. What Jesus went through is terrible. But one day, just like Jesus, we're going to rise from the dead, receive glorious bodies to never suffer again for all of eternity. That's the message he gives to Smyrna. It's subtle, but it's there. I'm your resurrected Christ who's in control of all this, and I'm going to resurrect you. They are reminded that they will overcome what Paul calls these light momentary afflictions. Jesus says in John 16, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You're going to have tribulations and trials and persecutions in this life. But what do you need to remember? Jesus overcame. And as the end of Revelation says, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Your faith in Christ has you to overcome these tribulations that we partake in in Christ. John Gill described it this way, tribulation is Christ's legacy to his people. And it lies in their way to heaven. And never was the way of any to heaven more strewed than it was with the way of the saints in the first century. But Christ took notice of it and of them in it. He knew their souls in adversity and remarked their patience under it and their constancy and their close adherence to him. Jesus is with us in our sufferings. He is for us in our sufferings, and he promises that we will overcome them. So Jesus encourages the church. He encourages them in their time of suffering by reminding them of his sovereignty, by reminding them of his passion, by reminding them that they will overcome. But Jesus does something else that's very important. He doesn't just lift their souls. He doesn't just encourage them. He vindicates them. He vindicates them. This is important. When, when your world is crashing down on you, sometimes it's hard to know how to interpret. Is this the judgment of God? Does God hate me? It feels like it. Why would he allow this? Did I do something wrong? And, and that could be difficult to know. I mean, God does. The Bible is very clear. He disciplines us. Sometimes our sufferings, they are discipline from the Lord. But the only thing that makes suffering worse is feeling as if, you know what? I deserve this. I, I earned this. This is, this is God's way of turning his face from me and rejecting me. And so Jesus reminds this church, he vindicates her. You're the good guy still. I'm not against you, I'm for you. How does he do that? Well, first, he vindicates by simply affirming her. He affirms her holiness. Look at what he says in verse 9. I know your tribulation and poverty. So he sees, he's intimately familiar with, with their poverty, their destitution, and all of their troubles. But what does he tell them? But you are rich. You are not impoverished. You are not a poor church. 
You're a rich church. This is in the English language what we call a paradox. A paradox is something that on the surface seems like a contradiction. But when you dive in deeper, you see how it actually fits together very cleanly. Right? How is this a paradox? How does it appear to be a contradiction? Jesus says this impoverished church, this church that's in poverty, they're very rich. This is the richest poor church you'll ever meet. We use this kind of language all the time, right? Sometimes people will go through a really hard thing and then God will use it for good in their life. And so they might think back on that and they might say, that was the worst thing that's ever happened to me. But you know what? It was also the best thing that's ever happened to me. That's technically a contradiction, right? Best and worst are contradictory phrases. That can't be the case. But what do we know? We know that it's because they mean in one sense it was the worst thing that ever happened. But in a different sense... It's the best thing that's ever happened to me. It's a paradox. Seems like a contradiction, but it's not. And Jesus speaks here to a paradoxical church. This is a church that is impoverished. They have nothing. Everything's been taken from them. They are poor and destitute. But Jesus looks at them and says, no, 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 no. You are wealthy. You are rich. Rich in what? They are rich in faith, rich in grace, rich in favor, rich in good works, rich in holiness. This is a church that has spiritual finances. And those are what God really delights in. So in other words, how does Jesus comfort them by affirming them? Well, because what Jesus is reminding them is their horrible circumstances are not a reflection that they're doing something wrong. Remember, it's easy to go there, right? Is it not? Is it not easy? When my world's falling apart, I must be doing something wrong. God's trying to send me a message here. What's Smyrna doing wrong? Their church isn't growing. Their church growth program's not working. They're losing money. Everyone's out to get them. They must be doing something wrong. All the churches around the corner have been growing pretty steadily this quarter. Those churches have a huge budget. And they're buying all sorts of gadgets and doing all these cool things for the community. And Smyrna's over here barely able to get by. They must be doing something wrong. But what does Jesus tell them? No, 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 no. You are rich. You are rich. Their poverty, their persecution, their tribulation, it is not a sign from God that they are a bad church, that they're doing something wrong, or that God has turned his face from them. He says, I'm testing you right now, but you, you are rich. See, he, he affirms them. This is, by the way, further demonstrated that he promises this church their eternal reward. Look again at verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Right? What does he tell them? If they continue on their course, if they continue their faith, if they just stay, if they keep it up, they're going to be resurrected. There's that old hymn, we, I am bound for the promised land. Bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised This is a church, this is what Jesus says in verse 10. You're bound for the promised land. You're, you're on that path. You're headed there. Just stay faithful. Stay faithful even unto death. Stay faithful. You, right now, you are on the highway to heaven. So what is that telling? This is not an apostate church that God is disciplining. This is not a wicked church that God is judging. 
They're on, they are bound for the promised land. Jesus says, don't let these sufferings make you think you're off track. No, you're on track. Just keep it up. Don't fall away. Stay faithful and you'll receive resurrection. I'll give you your crown of eternal life. He has affirmed this church and in that he vindicates them. This is not your fault. This is not your fault. But he also vindicates them by identifying their enemies and implying judgment upon them. In other words, he tells them, it's not your fault. I know whose fault it is. He vindicates this church by implying the judgment of her enemies. Look at what he says in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus goes out of his way to say, listen, I know who the bad guys are in this situation. I know who it is who's causing you this trouble. In this, by the way, is the implication of judgment. And this is a great comfort in and of itself. Doesn't it feel good to know that when evil, horrible people do wicked things, God says, I see that. Do you think anyone's going to sneak by on judgment day? Think anyone's just going to, God's going to be like, oh man, you did that to Smyrna? I don't remember. Hmm, I, I, I must have missed it. The judge of all the earth will do right. Justice is coming. And we need to remind that, remember, our, remember that, remind ourselves of that during times of persecution. Justice is coming. Our omniscient, sovereign God knows and sees all. It's coming. People can do whatever they want to us now. They will stand before God one day. God says, I know who's causing trouble among you. I've got my eye. I know. He specifically identifies them with this interesting phrase, those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. It appears that the unbelieving Jewish people were, at least at this point in history, the biggest headache to the Christians. The, really, the only two biblical options we have of understanding this is these are either the Jewish people who have just outrightly rejected the Messiah altogether, or it's back in Galatians, kind of Judaizers. Maybe Jews who claim to believe in Jesus, but they really don't. But either way, these are either unbelieving or apostate Jews who are persecuting the Christian people. Now, the text is difficult because the word in the ESV says slander. Your text might use the word blaspheme. They're the same word in the Greek, and we have to contextually. So either these the Jews are slandering this church, or they're somehow blaspheming God. But, but however you interpret that word, Jesus is clearly identifying who the problem is here. And it's right now. It's the Jewish people. And by the way, this actually lasted for quite some time. We see this, for example, if you uh, were to do a study of patristics, that's the study of the early church fathers, patri, Latin's fathers, study of the fathers. The earliest patristic sources we have are what we call the apostolic fathers. Now, why do we call them that? It's because these would be Christians who were not, their letters, their writings are not in scripture. They're not, this is not biblical text. But these are the closest people to the apostolic age. In other words, we typically call them the apostolic fathers because some of the men whose writings we have, we believe actually knew some of the apostles and studied under them. So these are very, very primitive writings. And what's even more interesting is we have, among our group of apostolic fathers, Smyrna sort of takes center stage. 
we know of the person who eventually became bishop over them. His name was Polycarp. And we not only have letters to, to, to Polycarp, but we also have letters from the church of Smyrna. Now, there's a, there's a big debate in the Christian church as to when we date the book of Revelation. And there's even some disagreement on when we date these books. So they, but, but the point is, is that these letters from Smyrna could be anywhere from 10 to 40 years after the writing of Revelation. But either way, that's remarkably close. It's, it's a very high possibility that some of the people addressed in the apostolic letters may have even received from John the book of Revelation or from the messengers. This is an extremely primitive people. So somewhere 10 to 40 years later, writing about Polycarp, their bishop who was murdered, persecuted for his faith, this is one of the accounts. It says this, These things then happened with surprising swiftness, quicker than words could tell. The crowd swiftly collecting wood and kindling from their workshops and baths because they burned him alive. And then it goes on to say this, The Jews being especially eager to assist in this as it was their custom. It was a normal thing. For Smyrna, even many years after, well not many, but even 10 to 40 years after the writing of Revelation. It was the custom of the Jews to persecute us and be against us. And so how does Jesus vindicate the church? He identifies their enemy. And how does he do so? He says, I know the slander or the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but they are not. Right, this takes us back to what we talked about at the end of Galatians. Jesus is the ultimate Jew. And it is by faith in Christ that we are united to Abraham. It is faith in Christ that we are united to God. And so these people who have rejected Jesus, rejected their Messiah, are really not true Jews. They say they are. They worship in their synagogue still. But Jesus says, I don't know them. They are not my people. He says they say they are Jews, but they are not. And he even goes on to be even more harsh. But they are what? A synagogue of Satan. They gather in their synagogues and they worship. They think they're worshiping Yahweh. They think they're worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They think they're worshiping the one true God. And what does Jesus tell us? Who are they worshiping? It is Satan who sits upon that throne. They are a synagogue of Satan. They are children of the devil. Satan is their pastor, their shepherd. But by the way, this is by no means, by any stretch of the imagination, any kind of encouraging us to be anti-Semitic. Because it is not just unbelieving Jews who reject Christ and worship false things. Anyone who rejects Christ and worships a false god falls into this exact same category. They are not the people of God. They are not who they say they are. They are a church of Satan. This is true of any religious institution outside of Christ. Synagogue of Satan. When you're driving down the street and you see big, pretty churches from all of these false religions, what needs to pop in your head? Synagogue of Satan. They have rejected Christ, so they are children of the devil. Jesus holds no punches back. These people belong to their father, the devil, not to me. Christ is building his church. Christ has his church, but Satan has his churches too. 
Satan's building a church too. And there are many local expressions of Satan's church. And Jesus affirms this church. He encourages them by saying, I know who they are. I see them and I know who they really are. I know who they say they are to you. They persecute you. They pressure you. They make you feel small. I know who they are. In other words, to put it very bluntly, Jesus tells the church in Smyrna, you're the good guys. This is not your fault. You're the good guys. He vindicates her. Jesus affirms his church. He encourages church and he vindicates his churches. And, and, and here's the best news in all of it. Look at, at verse 11 as we conclude. Jesus ends this message to them by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to who the church is. Not Smyrna, but to all the churches that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He reminds them again, you see, everyone's going to die once. But believers live eternally after that. It is only unbelievers who die a second time. But those who conquer, those who remain in Christ up to the end, they will not die twice. They will die once. And then they'll live with Jesus forever. But notice though, who does Jesus and John and the deliverer of the message expect will hear these words to Smyrna? Just Smyrna? Every church is reading what the other churches in their areas are going through. So what does that tell us? Even though Jesus is specifically addressing Smyrna, even though John is specifically addressing this one church in here, they expect the other churches are going to hear this and learn from this. And so what does that mean? That means that a church in Roswell, 2,000 years later, not going through the same persecutions, we're not living in the same area, not living in the same time, but this was not just for Smyrna. This is for anyone who has ears to hear. And so I remind you, all of these things that Jesus did and said to this church, I want to uh, remind us and have us take comfort. They're for us. When and if persecution comes, let me remind you of this. Jesus will encourage us. He will remind us that he has walked the road of persecution. He will remind us that by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, we will overcome whatever the world throws at us. He reminds us that he is sovereign and in control over our circumstances. And he will vindicate us. If we stay faithful, he will vindicate us. We will receive the crown of life. We will not be hurt by the second death, but our enemies will. So may we be comforted by these words to Smyrna. May we be encouraged, especially, I know this keeps coming up, but it's in the air, it's important. I just hear so much fear and discouragement about what's coming down the pike for American Christians. But let me tell you, first thing, I guarantee you, whatever, whatever happens in November, our lives will be nothing like they were in Smyrna. They're going to be significantly better. No matter what happens, significantly better. We are not heading into November into some new territory that God has never taken his church through. It's a walk in the park. Just, just read, read about Nero. Just read about Nero. And tell me you think Biden compares to Nero. Read about what was happening in Smyrna. Read the Apostolic Fathers. Read the Christians being burned to death. There's children being murdered, them being taken from their homes or churches. That's not coming in November. Maybe in the future, not in November. We need, we need to find a little bit more hope. 
God has got his church through a lot over the last 2,000 years, and I mean a lot. He has vindicated her. He has protected her. He has loved her. He has comforted her. What does Smyrna tell us? We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Now, what does that mean? Being okay for them meant death, potentially. I don't necessarily mean that bad things aren't going to happen. That's not what I mean. Jesus told the Smyrna, do not fear when you die. (laughs) So who knows, maybe 10, 50, 100 years from now, maybe it will be as bad as Smyrna. Maybe our grandchildren will be killed. But what does this text tell me? Oh, what can I still say? It's going to be okay. The sovereign, eternal, crucified, and risen king is still on his throne, loving his church, comforting his church, protecting his church, testing his church, and being there present with his church. We are not voting Jesus out of office in November. He loves us. He loves his people. He encourages his people. He vindicates his people. That was a comfort to Smyrna. May it be a comfort for us. 